Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Canadian Story. Very uh, glad to have one of my uh, favorite person, Alan's favorite professors, Chris, here. Chris uh, teaches at Trent University, and I'll let him give a little bit of his 30-second bio, uh, what, what he's all about. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, my 30-second 30, 30 bio is that I'm obviously a professor of Canadian history at Trent University. Uh, I've written about a lot of things, including uh, Weird Willie Mackenzie uh, King's, our, our kind of longest-serving prime minister, his, his strange afterlife. Uh, I've written a lot about um, kind of Canadian uh, 19th century political history recently. I host a podcast called 1867 and all that, really trying to kind of bring the what I think is just an incredibly fascinating history of Canada to, uh, to Canadians uh, outside the university. Uh, and recently, I'm really interested in uh, the issues about kind of viewpoint diversity or lack of viewpoint diversity in Canadian universities and the impact that has on a whole whole host of things and uh, also hopefully what we can do to, to improve that. So that, that's where I'm coming from. I'm really uh, thankful that you've, you've come on the podcast, for, for, particularly because history is something that I love immensely and have, have studied most of my life. And I know Zach's big into history as well. Uh, but the thing, I, I couldn't agree more. Our story is just not being told. What what is Canada is is literally not being communicated in our education system right now, and I think we need to change that. We we need to have an understanding. So, someone like yourself who's interested in Canadian history, what is it about Canadian history that excites you enough to dedicate your life to it? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, I, you know, a I, 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 personal anecdote. I, I still remember being in like I can't remember if it was grade seven or eight in a classroom uh, with 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 a teacher teaching Canadian history with, in, in all the in all the wrong ways that I were always told. So he would he would sit up there and write out on the chalkboard like a little story about Canadian history. And it was the it was the 17th and 18th century story of the battle between the French and the English and their indigenous allies. And and I I remember the whole time I kept wanting the French and what was called at the time the Indians to win. And it was this incredible story. And of course they, <laughs> I they love didn't that. win. They didn't, no, you know, no. But I but I kept I just fell in love with it. And it, literally, it was the worst possible way of teaching. He was just writing it up on the chalkboard. And I we would just have to uh, we would just have to write it down. But as I was writing it down, I just kept I just fell in love with the the, the drama of it all. Um, and so from there on, I, I've, that's what I've always loved. And I've gone into a whole bunch of different things. I would say what what's really fascinating me now. I've gone, you know, I studied really. I'm, I was for a long time a historian of like you know modern Canadian history since 1945. But over the last few years, I've really fallen in love with 19th century political history and all the weird personalities there. The, the Joseph Howes of Nova Scotia and his crazy ways. The story of you know of, of the. Uh, you know, rebellion losses bill when they kind of a, a Tory mob ransacked and burned down Parliament, and I think, <laughs> yeah, like you new know, no, nobody knows about that. Tell us, no about one that. knows about that. So <laughs> these are just these incredible stories that um, are seen. You know, in the 1960s, tons of people talked about these things as it was the it was the centennial of Confederation. It was still a time when people cared about the story of the nation that really mattered. I think, especially in the 60s, Keynes were trying to say we're different than Americans, especially in the midst of the Vietnam War and all the other stories. So social turmoil. It was still cool on the left to say, oh, we're Canadian and that's good. And that's obviously long since gone now. Um, but over the last 50 years, all these stories that are 
kind of foundational stories about our democracy, about our, our institutions, um, the weird personalities, the great people here, the 1840s and 1850s are some of the best moments of Canadian political history. People are literally fighting duels or challenging each other in parliament. Uh, and yeah. you know, and then and then are being restrained from doing so, and 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 then they're heading off to the Mount Royal, Montreal, at the time where Parliament was, uh, and are kind of meeting up at dawn. And then you know, sometimes it's it's funny they'll meet up and then they'll kind of laugh and say, "What are we doing?" And head. <laughs> it's well, not yeah, it's yeah. not super manly in, in in the way you might imagine. But so so tell us about this Tory mob burning down Parliament. Like I don't even know that story. <laughs> All right. Okay. Great. So, uh, well, first of all, you should definitely listen to my podcast. I, 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 tell I will. The whole story I, I've there. listened to one. I want to listen to more episodes, but so, but in, in the first season, it covers all the stories about the, the rebellions of 1837, 38, and then this fight for responsible government. This basically responsible government just means like Westminster style democracy as we know it. But you know, in Canada at the time, the, the governors, the, you know, the lieutenant governors had much more power, and so there's a whole discussion in the 1840s. about well, can we can we get essentially responsible government? And when it finally comes in at the end of the 1840s, the government in power is run by these two guys, Robert Baldwin and Louis Lafontaine. And one of the first things they do is pass this thing called the Rebellion Losses Bill, which basically says we're going to compensate, we're going to give money to anyone from the rebellion from 10 years earlier who suffered damages. Now, the same thing had already been done in Upper Canada. It wasn't really a problem. But the problem was in Lower Canada, what's now Quebec, all kinds of people who suffered damages were people who had essentially supported the rebellion. <laughs> and right, they were putting right. in requests saying, my home was burned and I should be compensated. And they had, you know, listen, they had legitimate com complaints. They, they, you know, the, the army did go in and really more so than the British army, often the, the, the loyalist volunteers who were angry at the rebellion, they would, they burnt down some places they probably shouldn't have burnt down. But the idea that you would go and compensate these people, giving them, you know, all this money back, just infuriated uh, uh, kind of loyalist Tories, especially in Montreal. So when the, eventually this bill gets passed through the parliament, democratically under responsible government, a democratic elected government, the mob goes crazy. And they, <laughs> they, they meet up in like within hours, there, there's like editions of, of, the, of the daily newspapers are put out, meet on the, the Champ de Mars, we're going to go. And then they meet the Champ de Mars. They say, on to parliament. They head down to the parliament, parliamentary buildings. They storm in, they grab the mace, ceremonial mace and sm start smashing things. They smash the, the, the gas heating, of course, the gas lighting story that was there. And of course it goes up in flames. The whole thing starts burning down. No one actually dies and no one's injured. <laughs> Oh, wow. Wow. There are stories so, about these old guys having to slide down the banisters to get out anyway. So, <laughs> we, have, we have our, so basically, we had our own version of what happened in DC recently. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I love that. Um, yeah. Though, these are the stories that we should be telling. Um, why do you think they're not being told right now? Uh, well, there's a couple of different reasons, right? One, I, no one likes Canadian history for, for, for forever. In, in, in a sense, there's, Canadian history has often been seen as a kind of boring compared to other countries. So there's the kind of perennial problem there. That, you know, like that's a pretty good Canadian history story, but lots of Canadian history stories aren't quite as, as exciting as that. But more importantly, I would say Canadian historians, um, by and large, and, and the, the, the kind of Canadian in, 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 intelligentsia 
has fallen out of love with Canada. And, you know, for a certain portion of that, they just, you know, it's not really something that impassions them. And then there's another portion, probably a minority, but a significantly loud minority who actually detests Canada, who actually really, really dislikes Canada because of other political commitments to other kinds of national struggles, right? Other kinds of political struggles, which are sometimes, you know, well-intentioned, right? The struggle for Indigenous rights, the struggle for, you know, initially it was kind of Quebec rights or other kinds of, other kinds of identity groups, and when you look at Canadian history, you often find that these groups will come up against Canada as such, or the Canadian government. And so people are picking sides and they're saying, no, no, in this story, I'm going I'm to pick a side, as opposed to telling the whole story, you know, and you know, being committed to all of it. They, they'll often pick a side and picking that side usually means picking against Canada. So why do you think uh, people want to do that, considering they live here? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, I like maybe you know the the, the late British philosopher Roger Sir Roger Scruton often talked about this idea called oikophobia. You've probably heard about this oh, idea. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think Scruton. that uh, so hmm. he gets to a good point of this idea that the the growth of he 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 invented this kind of you know concept that was the opposite of xenophobia, not the hatred of others or dislike of others, fear of others, but the dislike of, of one's own culture, and he he associated it with a particular feature of the modern West that uh, essentially we become so affluent, so um, successful that uh, certainly amongst our uh, a certain intellectual class, the idea that you could, you know, pick apart your own culture be, has, kinda, has a certain kind of intellectual kudos. Now, this actually has a long um, history in, in England, in particular in English history, the, the kind of skepticism of kind of English history, the, the English story, you can trace this back quite a way. So there's a particularly kind of English Canadian version of this, uh, certainly amongst the intellectual class. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, we've got, I mean, I don't, um, my thing with Nietzsche is he said, you know, God is dead and we've killed him and we'll never wipe up the blood. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we killed God. But I, I, I just see this as really the malaise of modernity, as Charles, Charles Taylor said, right, is that we've we've lost any kind of mooring to uh, to place and self and identity. And this is left... I mean, we see this with actually in modern Christian universities too. There's a ton of biblical criticism. It's basically like, oh, actually, none of this is real. We're going to rip it apart. We're going to tear everything down. But it's like, okay, that's cool. Like, that's science, right? Is constantly questioning things and constantly asking, how could it be better? Am I, how do I be less wrong? But like I like to say, there's a big difference between the religion of science and the philosophy of science. And I feel like we've got into this religion of science where, well, it, it's based on these theories that are not being expressed. So like the criticism of Canada, and that's what I'd like to get deeper with you on, is part of a larger malaise of just a desire to constantly be critiquing. Yeah, so... So you're saying there's always this kind of deconstruction as opposed to ever yes, construction. Yes, deconstructionism yeah. seems to have taken over the universe. Yeah, and I think that's true. Although what's interesting, though, about it is that it's quite selective, right? So like, you can take down certain kinds of collective national identities, but it's, it's picking which ones you take apart, right? You know, you, like all national identities are, of course, you know, feats of human imagination, right? We imagine that we have something in common. We, and to a certain extent, we can create those commonalities. We don't actually have that, everything in common with these other people. And we also have things in common with people who aren't Canadian, right? But we create this story. And so Canadian academics, I think they always have a role to sort of point out the contingency of that. Um, but there's two things they don't do. A, they they only selectively pick the collective groups they want right, to pick. Right, right, right. So there's certain <laughs> groups that are off that are off 
target, right? You, and you might do that, but it's really not. You're not going to talk about the, the the social constructed nature of of, of Mohawk culture, right? That's not going to be a thing no, you're going to do. No, no. Because you know, even though there's just as much legitimacy legitimacy intellectually in that kind of critique. Um, and then secondly, where was I going to go with that? I think it was the, also that, oh, that's right. You don't, there's a, there's a way in which we don't think of, as much about, um, you know, what are the, what are the benefits of, of kind of c- collective identity? What are the benefits of these imagined communities? And, and I, I like the work of, there's a guy, you know, Francis Fukuyama, you, you've probably heard about from years ago and his, his, his work has changed over the years. And recently he's really been thinking about kind of the big history of human politics since like, you know, pr- primordial man to now. Uh, and he's he has some interesting work about the way in which state societies, collective societies, are about you know forming bonds of, of you know much larger bonds. And you can do this better and worse. You can do it worse if you focus on ethnic uh, tensions, which are very exclusive, and you can do it better if you focus focus on kind of weak civic bonds, which are pretty expansive and it can include a lot of different people. What's your, what role do you think geography plays on in, in on all of this? Because um... I, I've I've read a lot on uh, political theorists who like d- geography's destiny and Canada's geography obviously puts us in a very unique situation, maybe in the in, glo- in global history, right? That to be right beside a superpower and basically never invaded, to be to have oceans on three sides. I mean, it's almost like being the UK, an island nation, right? We're protected from what normal countries have had to face. What role do you think that's played in? kind of how Canada has developed uh, as historically, but also on a philosophic level? Well, I mean, that's that's a huge question. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do a really bad job answering it, let's be honest. Let well, me pick out you a, know, it's, let, it's not a contest. <laughs> <laughs> let me pick out one thing. Let me pick out one thing that really kind of continues on what we were talking about. Um, I feel like, uh, and, and I'll get back to your point here, I feel like there's always the danger of... Uh, you know, what's called hedonic adaptation. You know, this concept where basically you become so accustomed to a, a certain level of affluence that you then forget what it's like to not have that affluence, right? As Ooh, soon as you're making- yes, I like this. So, yes. As soon as you're making $30,000 a year, you forget what it was like to make $20,000 a year and you can take it on down. And it seems to be part of human nature. And I feel like there's two things going on here. One in the modern West, we're so, we're so historically affluent by, by historic standards that we just have no sense of that in our, in our everyday life. That's one thing. And then the Canadian story is that we're so safe. We're so safe by contemporary standards. And that has a lot to do with our proximity to the United States and, and its, its imperial power, frankly. Um, and Canadians are always anxious about that because we want our national sovereignty, you know, et cetera. But we also want to benefit wholly from that, from yeah, that proximity. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we were like this under the British Empire as well. We, we have this you know, we've never been a world power in our own right, but we've always been very close to, 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 to world powers and we benefit from that, but we also have existential ang- angst around that. So to the extent that, the, to the extent that, you know, a lot of contemporary Canadians, you know, don't acknowledge a, the affluence we have and don't acknowledge the safety we have from, from these situations, I think that's, that's a dilemma for us. We have to kind of continually remind ourselves of that. Do you, do you see, so like, if we're just wildly speculating here do you see that that continuing on for the next hundred years or do you see canada rising to a different kind of position or maybe like my great fear is that we can become like argentina right <laughs> <laughs> yeah well probably I, I, what, what do you mean by that what, 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 well, I just, what's so bad about argentina <laughs> well if you look at argentina 
in the 19, in about 1914, Buenos Aires was considered the Paris of the West. Uh, they were about equivalent size to us economically. They were booming. I mean, pe- people were moving there from all over the world for the opportunities that Argentina represented. And then they went down this path of um, more so- very socialistic to the point of state ownership of almost everything. And the result is, if you look at the econo- economies and the populations of Argentina versus Canada, because they're very similar, right? They're, they're both, you know, fairly protected from the old world. They're, they were, they have massive natural resources, a uh, huge agriculture potential. And yet Argentina is like barely puttering along at the bottom of the sea, right? Just hoping not to collapse into, into military dictatorship and Canada has flourished. Now, arguably that could be what you said, proximity to the superpower, which I love. And I want us to go into more a little bit like, that is a unique situation where we're next to a superpower, but we don't, while we feel this uh, existential angst, we don't really feel threatened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, we speak about threat and there are kind of certain kinds of threats, but they're not, they're not the threats of, of this, you know, right now, people in Ukraine uh, yes, thinking about yes. their being next <laughs> yes. to their own superpower. So that's a, it's important to remind ourselves of that. I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure about the Argentinian example. I, I know a little bit about it, but I will say that, I mean, the danger for Canada is the danger for the Western world in general right now, that as much as we may have, uh, uh, have our anxieties around the United States, uh, and many people on the left, of course, lost their minds, sometimes with good reason, sometimes with not, when Trump was in power, um, we tied to, we're tied to the success of the American project to a certain extent. And uh, when the American project f- fails, we will probably fail as well. The idea that Canada will somehow maintain its status of living if the United States doesn't is probably a ludicrous idea. Uh, and we need to kind of have a more uh, self-aware acknowledgement of that, that we're committed to this project collectively. And, you know, and, and to a certain extent, that also ties to Europe as well, that the modern West has a certain kinds of our way of life, our uh, trading institutions, our systems of government. And, you know, you can expand this outwards. I wouldn't just say, you know, you can expand it over to countries like Japan as well. There are certain countries that share our values in, in a general sense that we're, we're tied to. Uh, and right now, the, 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 you know, the possibility is that, you know, China, to a certain extent, is going to have a, is going to have a different world order. Yes, um, yes. And, and we don't know what, what that's going to mean. Like, and, you know, and I think a lot of, I think the, the, the easy you know, argument of the intelligentsia is always to criticize the American empire in this, in, in these kinds of ways. And it's often for good reasons, but they live in a kind of utopia where, you know, one world power is replaced by none. And there's just this vacuum. And <laughs> right, everyone, right. Yes. Everyone lives in this, um, you know, global world order of equal nations. And historically, there's just never been the case. It, we've always lived in a world of empires. We always lived in a world of superpowers. Now, never to the extent I would say that we had in the Cold War, but pretty much all, that's always the case. So the idea that the U.S. is going to go down or the modern West is going to go down, and it's going to be replaced by this kind of you know beautific uh, vision of, of world uh, progress is pretty naive, I would say. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I personally, I don't believe the U.S. is going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, they're probably, in my opinion, but but we won't get into that because that's not the Canadian story. <laughs> um, I want to go more into what you were saying about uh, the existential angst and like your perspective as a historian. I, I, I did my, uh, my undergrad thesis on Arctic sovereignty, which has been a huge Canadian existential problem ever since the do line was kind of proposed. What do you think? Cause Canada is kind of an impossible project, right? We're like, we're the marriage of two enemies. Uh, we're, 
you know, where desperate people are, we're ge- geographically spread thin across a, a very small band of, of area. What do you think? Do you think that existential angst has actually bonded us to some degree? Right. The uncertainty of, of, of the Canadian project bonds people together. Yeah. Um, and maybe the fear uh, of America taking us over. So yes, absolutely. To that last point, absolutely. The you know the sense of an enemy always brings a group together, and it's not a probably the reason Canadian nationalism is so um, tepid is because the enemy isn't that much to be feared. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, that's so true. So uh, true. we we're very happy to you know from I mean people don't realize even even in the 19th century, m- many Canadians were, were subscribing to American newspapers and magazines and bringing them into the country. So and our you know the, the news source for years before Canadian press was created came from the United States. Um, so we've always loved American culture. I mean, there's a way in which there's a certain kind of Canadian nationalism, especially that's developed since the 1970s, which is about, you know, unity and diversity, right? And there's a certain kind of strength to that, that we're a very a multicultural nation, an accepting nation, and that has an incredible usefulness. To the extent that we embrace that, that can be a, a kind of u- unifying ideal. It has limitations in the sense that it can also... Um, be used or you know, to, to kind of push difference even more, you know, you know increase the difference between Canadians. But it certainly is a pretty useful, thin, kind of liberal order um, idea that we can all bond together despite our many differences, right? And I think there's there's a certain that I mean that is to a certain extent Canadian nationalism now. Yeah, I, and in fact, I I argue uh, in other podcasts that we've done that that that, that is that that is being misused right now to claim that diversity is strength, which is ridiculous. Diversity's never been strength, right? Diversity is always, look at Yugoslavia, look at Rwanda, like diversity is always a potential fire. But what Canada has is not that we have diversity, it's that we actually have harmony, largely. And I think the reason that we have that, I don't know what the reason is. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, (laughs) uh, I mean, my one answer would be the, the in the historically the biggest issue of diversity was the French fact, right? Yes, yes. And that was nicely taken care of, or you know, I, I'm, I'm being vastly generalizing here, but nicely taken care of by the fact that most of those people in that ethnic and religious uh, difference found themselves within one, you know, semi-state of Quebec. Right, you know, obviously there's Franco New Brunswickers and Ontarians, etc. But really, they and they can express themselves and, and protect their culture within that within that provincial state. So that was helpful. Certainly, what didn't mean that you know that uh, violent nationalism and, and terrorism didn't emerge in the 1960s, and there weren't movements to separate. Um, but I, I am worried now. I would say about a kind of Canadian nationalism which embraces, which wants to enshrine ethnic differences even more profoundly. I think. Yes. Yes. I think there's a there's a, there's an embrace of sorry, embrace of difference, which acknowledges that we are different, but we have things in common, and and wants to kind of you know not eradicate differences, not not just push people to assimilation. That's pretty a positive idea, I think. But there's a different kind of uh, idea being pushed now, which is that we should really push our differences, we should emphasize our differences even more. And to the extent that Canada exists, and even potentially might people might want to identify with Canada as opposed to another difference, then that becomes a threat and, and kind of evil and. You know, there's a fine line there, right? It could be a kind of forced evil if you're assuming that everyone should get rid of their culture and become Canadian and have a very stringent idea of what Canada is. I don't think that's really the case 
at all right now in Canada. And so I, I do worry to a certain extent if we if we, if we were to codify certain uh, uh, differences, uh, I think I think that's a real danger. Oh, I I could not agree more. I mean. How are you supposed to bond with people if all you're focusing on is how you're different with them, right? Like you're, you're not gonna. It's literally similarity that brings bond, right? It's like, oh, you too. You're interested in this as well, or oh, you love that. That's how people bond. And taking away the, I loved loved what you said earlier about uh, like weak civic ideas, and and you didn't mean weak. You just meant the bond is kind of ethereal. But it's it's being used to, to bring us all together, and I I can't help but think of like when the Raptors were in the in the finals, right, or when they were going through that. Everyone in this country hates Toronto, but except for Toronto, <laughs> right? Like, and yet I'm I'm going down one of the streets in Kensington Market in in uh, Calgary, and every single bar is packed to the Raptors watching the Raptors, right? Like I'm talking, there's no room anywhere. They're all beyond fire code. And I couldn't help but think, you know, at the end of the day, what brings us together is that we, we really are proud to be Canadian. It's just, it takes events like winning the gold medal, Crosby winning that gold medal goal to, to really bring it out. What do you think can be done? Like, and I, I want to go into the universities now. What do you think that can be done to restore that kind of nationalism, which is a, a patriotism of pure love? Right. There's no there's no benefits really to people in Alberta for the Raptors to win, but it's Canada winning. Um, well, if we well, if we go switch to the universities, I think, you know, listen, I, I don't want to push a kind of nationalistic paradigm and say we need to have. Um, yeah, you can only get jobs in universities if you love Canada. That oh, would no, be of course. Exactly. Of course. The opposite yes. of no, what I would yeah. believe in. <laughs> yes. but, uh, but here's what I think. I think that, you know, um, there's a danger right now in Canadian universities of of of, of, of homogeneity, of, of creating a monoculture. In fact, it's we don't have yet enough good data on the Canadian scene to be certain of this. Although I'm in the process of you know of trying to find, get that data, but we know from the limited limited Canadian data we have, and from what we know about the U.S. and the U.K. and some other European countries, that universities have become these political and ideological monocultures, especially in the social sciences and humanities. And it seems to be getting worse. So whereas, you know, you might've always said universities are always sort of what Americans would say, liberal places, they mean left-wing places. And that's pretty much true. Um, but the ratio of, 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 of the switch there is dramatically worse now, dramatically more skewed than, than it's ever been. And you probably saw uh, this recent report put out by this uh, uh, American Institute by actually a Canadian born guy, Eric Kaufman, a teacher in the UK, uh, and what he found is that, you know, he drew on some Canadian data is that the, you know, the, the ratio um, amongst from for people who identify professors who identify in the left versus professors who identify in the right was 73% to 4%. So wow. let me just, let's just, let's just repeat those numbers again. So 73% of people identified as being on, on the, the left and, and for only 4% on the right. And so the rest are going to be in, in the center there. And that's, you know, and that I would say is amongst academics of a, probably a pretty more refined idea of what's left and what's right. And so m many people who would see themselves in the center or probably others would identify as being on the left. Uh, right. Now, yes. That's an, that's an incredible skew. Now, you know, listen, so and, and when you combine that with the fact that, you know, people on the left and right are both equally willing to discriminate against their political opponents. It's right. Not a, right. It's not yes. a left or a right wing thing. But when you build that kind of skew into an institution 
and then subject people to peer review on a whole host of levels, right? right? Whether right. when you apply apply for a job, when you apply to get into graduate school, when you apply for a grant, when you apply you submit something for publication. Every time you do that, you're subject to, to review from your peers. So uh, you're always, almost always, if, if you're on the right, if you're conservative, you're almost always going to be reviewed overwhelmingly by people who, who disagree with you politically. And equally, and perhaps even more importantly, people on the left are going to be reviewed by people who already basically agree with them. Right. So you're, we're no longer in the scientific method because we, we are skewed subjective. Our subjectivity is skewed to our bias. Yeah, so you know, confirmation bias is a human uh, failing. It doesn't get, it doesn't improve uh, with uh, with intelligence. In fact, it might actually, it might actually get worse. The more you know, the more rationales you have to explain why you're right. And so you you can then, you know, you can embrace kind of motivated reasoning where you're looking for an answer and you find an answer. So, listen, now, people on the both the left and the right should equally care about this because. Uh, uh, you know, basically our solutions to problems, the way we tell stories about Canada, all of these things are going to be skewed by this, by this imbalance. So we need to find a way to, to, to balance things out certainly a little bit more uh, than they are, than they are right now. How, how would you see that happening? How would you, like, cause I, I actually uh, dropped out of my master's because of this very thing. I was literally sitting in classrooms being called names by my professors and I didn't really care cause you know, I, I'd already, at, you know, 23, I'd worked for the prime minister. I knew that I knew more about politics than, than they did on a practical level, right? So it didn't, didn't hurt my feelings, but I just, I found it an almost intolerably, intolerable place to be, right? Because it was basically just bullying. Um, now I'm not saying that all professors do that, and I had some good, good professors. I've had many good professors over my life, but it's, it's, it, it's like you said, it's, it's more than just, uh, than just they believe something. It's that they're kind of radical about it. Yeah, and so, there, I mean, there's, there's a, the, the, the data, the polling on this shows that there are two groups, right? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a significant minority, but only a minority, who are willing to openly admit that they're going to just discriminate against their opponents. And so, I mean, it, and this comes down to even small things. The data was like, would you have lunch with, with a known Trump supporter? <laughs> and, right, right. And, it was, and it, was, it was, I forget the exact numbers, but an overwhelming majority a Canadian professor said, no, they wouldn't do this. Oh, oh. Um, wow. Um, wow. Just not even have lunch with someone. <laughs> wouldn't uh, even. Uh, or oh. equally, and it's interesting, it goes in different ways. So if you're a gender critical feminist, right? So a feminist who has concerns about the way trans issues are discussed, or, you know, just talking about the biology of sex, that they actually suffered even worse in this kind of category. So anyway, there's, there's, a, there's a significant minority who would, who would openly discriminate. But then there's a kind of, the, the majority of, of academics wouldn't discriminate, but they also wouldn't, intervene necessarily if someone else was being attacked. And that's the, the core problem. And I think that's what we have to, that's the group we have to reach out to, basically, is that people who are they're committed to academic freedom, but, you know, they have these other, uh, other kind of commitments as well, especially to, you know, I, certain kinds of identity politics, especially the language of harm and safety as it's being employed mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. that certain kinds of speech, certain arguments, certain, certain, you might even say truths are harmful, right? You're harmful to say, and so you shouldn't say that. And so they're, they're torn between those kinds of dual commitments. I'd be very interested in, in your analysis on how you think we got here. How do we get to a point where we're making victims our saints? Uh, okay. <laughs> well, 
I mean, there is, you, you probably know of, there's a great book you should all go and read. There's actually a shorter article version of this by two sociologists, Campbell and Manning, called The Rise of Victimhood Culture. If you don't know that book, take no, a look. I don't it's know, great, but I will definitely be ordering it right away, yeah. It's a great book. Um, and they've got a good answer for this. And basically, they say that we're, we've transitioned, sort of the timing is roughly in the 1980s to a culture which places a lot of value in, in victimhood. And, and there's, there's, there's lots of reasons for this. It, it transitions out of a kind of an earlier kind of individual rights dignity culture. And you can look at the sayings of, of that earlier culture, which is, you know, sticks and st- stones may break my bones, you know, you yep, just stick yep. up for yourself, these kinds of ideas, to a culture which sort of wants to emphasize the value of, of victimhood. And, and again, there's lots of positive about this, right? But there's also a significant downside. In the university, this happens not through any nefarious ways. It just through, happens through kind of generational change. And then, of course, equally as you as you hire, then you hire people who are like you. And the hiring processes of universities are you know ripe for these kinds of of the creation of these kinds of monocultures. But there are, I think, there are ways out of this. You asked earlier about ways out of this. I could go on about that. Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah. So I think there are two kinds of approaches, right? One is the kind of cultural argument. We need to kind of embrace and talk about viewpoint diversity, heterodoxy. And there's some there's a great American institution, Heterodox Academy, kind of formed by Jonathan Haidt and others. Um, and there's a Canadian subversion of that. Uh, I'm actually in there in the early, very early stages of creating a think tank, think tank in Canada specifically devoted to these values and pushing these kinds of values. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of, value in just speaking out and saying, you know, listen, we need viewpoint diversity, not being afraid that you're going to be censored. So people like me who have tenure should be relatively safe to say this. We need to embrace these values and show people that it's possible to to accept people you disagree with and that we're all going to benefit from that. Uh, by the way, uh, if you ever need any fundraising for that, let me know. I'm okay, well, I, I, I have a lot of people that would be interested in putting money into something like that. Uh, well, I would definitely talk to you after this. Yes, That's absolutely. Fantastic. So, I love this, but I want to. So, what what brought you to this conclusion? Because I mean, uh, Alan tells me this was a journey for you, right? That uh, that you were not always looking at this and saying we need more diversity of viewpoints. What what shifted for you? Um, you know, yeah. So it's true. I, I mean, I would have considered myself as a young academic, definitely on the left. Um, you know, I, I think I've got. A, I've, I've got. I'm not sure where you'd place me now, frankly. Maybe a kind of Berkey and Red Tory, but I'm. I'm, I, but but I'm nostalgic for, for for the culture of the 1970s and 80s and liberalism. So does that make one conservative? I don't know. Um, yeah. So <laughs> probably. I think <laughs> probably. Uh, probably. Yeah. It probably does. Um, I think it's. I think I've switched in connection with the transformation that's happened in the profession. That I, I've always been committed to these liberal uh, viewpoint diversity values about debate, and that's why I wanted to be an intellectual. I wanted to debate things. I came yeah, from a, yeah. I came from a working class family. Uh, thought, oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to get to university and see all these great minds thinking differently and really engaged in debate. And what I often found was people thinking alike, uh, and that when you actually spoke out against things, you were actually punished for that. You know, in awkward socially social kinds of ways, and I. I was disappointed with that, so I've often been pushing in those directions. I love but that. I, I, and, and Zach was saying something. You want to share what you were saying about changing your mind before we started the, the episode? I was just making a passing comment um, about how there is no space, it feels like, these days for people to change their opinions. You know, if you speak out against a certain narrative, the the move is to cancel someone. Even, like, it's unproductive to cancel people because it, it eliminates the conversation and no one learns when the conversations aren't having or aren't being had. It's more productive instead of canceling that person to have the conversation with them and 
hope that both of you can learn from it. I'll use an example. Not that I would have canceled this person, but we had Lisa Kirby on the podcast who, uh, you know, I'm a very conservative person. She's a liberal. Um, so traditionally, I think there should be less government spending in social programs. That's just kind of my mentality. But she told a really beautiful story about how, as a single mother, it was government funding that allowed her to go through university and really turn her life around and make something incredible out of herself. And it really put a dent in my, you know, anti-social government spending narrative because I realized how much it could help people, you know? In, in a world where everyone is being canceled for having different opinions, how do we bring back the conversation? Well, I mean, first of all, you have, you, have, you have a great idea of what conversation means, which is that you actually want to get to the truth and you want to learn from it, right? You want to grow. So that's, you're already starting from a great spot. Um, what I find increasingly is that when people say we need to have a conversation about something, some people mean you need to accept my viewpoint oh, and you, need to, you right. need to be reprogrammed to believe this. Right. Right? Yes. We need to have a conversation about X. You'll see this on all these you know, uh, stories. We need to have a conversation about that. They don't mean to have a conversation in the way you just said it. They mean you need to be reprogrammed so that you understand the truth as I already know it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's the real problem. And, that's a religion. And that's, that's, a re that's exactly a religion, yes. Yeah. It's, a, it's a secular religion. That's yes. absolutely correct. I have the true faith. You need to accept the true faith. You are a heretic either, yeah. either – and if you continue to be a heretic, you'll be excommunicated or you can come to the light and repent of your heretic ways. Which is a great yeah. parallel. The, the canceling is a religious excommunication without the God. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I, you know, I'm sure you guys know that the, the uh, many people have talked about the way in which world culture is very religious. There's even the idea of awakening comes from the great, great, the great awakening, yeah, 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 right? yeah, exactly, it's explicitly religious, but <laughs> in, a, in a way that's forgotten. Um, but yeah, and so the you know the danger of that is that you forget the notions of forgiveness of of learning. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, the, I, I don't I don't even like those phrases about forgiveness necessarily, though, because it seems to me what like what you were just saying is that. It's not even about opening someone to freedom. Like maybe you're the one who doesn't, you know, maybe you you need to learn. Maybe both sides need to learn about something, right? And so I think this, this it's the, the idea that, there, that you already know the truth is an intrinsic problem. And as, to the extent that many of these, these ideas come out of the university and the universities are increasingly homogenous spaces where people can say these ideas, speak these ideas, write these ideas, and never be challenged by someone who's intelligent and so say point to the flaws and have real conversations like you're talking about is itself the problem. We need to have these conversations in universities. We need this diversity in universities. So these ideas get challenged before they get into the world and wreak havoc, which is what's happening right now. Yeah, and going to that point, uh, I just think the pursuit of truth is the most noble thing you can do, but the, the, to obtain truth is an absurdity, right? Like, like, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because this is an argument my father and I have all the time. Is the truth knowable, right? And he's on the—he's a—he's an evangelical minister. Very much, the truth is not only knowable; it is known, right? And I'm very much like the subjectivity of the human mind in light of an infinite universe makes it almost impossible for me to believe that we can—we can understand themes and patterns and things like that. But to to, to claim truth is just that such—and this is where I just get so lost and. I'm trying to understand these SJW people. It's like, you're supposed to be pluralists. Like, you're supposed to be postmodern, and you've become just as religious as the people that the Enlightenment and the, was supposed to challenge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting thoughts about that, about truth, right? Because there's, there's a balance there between acknowledging what you're saying about the kind of 
the impossibility of knowing truth. And then, but then not going also to the, to the I, don't, I don't know your father, I'm sure he's a nice guy. He raised yeah. you, you seem like a nice guy, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> thank you, thank uh, you. <laughs> you know, but kind of, we'd absolutely know the truth. And I, I like, when I went into graduate school, a, a professor of mine recommended I read, the, read a book that just been published called That Noble Ideal, Objectivity and the American Historical Profession. Oh. And, and I've always liked this idea about that truth, like, like objectivity is a noble ideal. You know, you're never going to get to it, but you aspire to be that regardless. That the actual quest to be objective, the quest to find truth, is the process. The process is is the is the ultimate goal, oh, not the ultimate. I goal. love that. I we've talked about that a lot of the podcast. Like God is in the details, the process. You have to love the journey. If you if, and I think this is part of the problem is I see no guiding star for this movement, right? That for this homogenous beast, it's it seems to just be ravenous to destroy things. But what is it? trying to achieve and i and i haven't been able one of the things i say is you guys call yourself progressives okay where are we going like what's where are we progressing towards yeah i mean it's i, I it, it, that, that's a whole can of worms right? yes yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> i think i think there there are kind of moral values in this goal right it's it's the value of victimhood the problem, I would say, is that they often are not open to understanding the, the complexities of that when someone isn't actually a victim. They're not open to, they just assign labels of victimhood without really knowing what's true or not. Um, they're not open to changing their ideas about what, what that could be. They're not open to thinking about the, the ways of getting there. That we might, that actually different viewpoints might, might give you a different sense of that. So, I mean, I like Zach's story about um, uh, thinking about, okay, there could be some benefit for, for public spending in these areas, right? But equally, you might convince someone about the value of markets, talking about, you know, what's, 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 what's useful about, about having a hive mind of the market come to a solution when, you know, state intervention is, is not going to work. And there are, you know, I, I'm just, I, I'm a mixed methods guy on these things. Like, let's, let's use the market when the market is the best and let's use the state when it, when it works. I'm, again, Francis Fukuyama, I think, has written the best on these kinds of things. Like, and he's like, he's a guy who was a neoconservative and I think has shifted more into a camp where he says, the state is good for things we need states to do things but you know not too much well i i i love i always joke that you know he wrote a book called the end of history and the last man and and he's, i think he's never fully recovered <laughs> like because obviously we we history's uh woken up again <laughs> yeah yeah he, he's got answers to that his last book identity you should t take a look at it it's, it's a really oh, i will i will I, I, I mean it's just kind of a i guess a joke yeah no, I, I, joke, right? I, 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 I everyone always, makes that everyone joke always <laughs> guessing for that which is yeah. fair enough <laughs> i mean if you're gonna go out there and say that history's ended you know you, you're gonna take flack if it doesn't <laughs> every year yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh i love that well we don't have much time left uh is there anything else that you really wanted to discuss before uh before we end this episode uh just one last thing i i, I want to finish my point about uh what we can do with universities yes and that yes is, please I'm, do yes the second point i want to make is that i don't think a, a culture is going to do it we're going to need legislation and so i think we need to research what can be done and the, in the uk right now under the johnson government they've proposed they just put a white paper out saying that they're going to have a series of legislative changes to real really make changes including this thing called an academic freedom champion that's going to be involved in in, in, in kind of legislating academic freedom ensuring that universities are doing this and it's kind of like the like the, the human rights model of the 1960s over Canada when everyone created these hu human rights commissions and codes, which you can have, you know, which you can have criticism of now, but they were incredibly powerful at at, at pr promoting human rights. 
And if we had similar things about you know, academic freedom, pro academic freedom and viewpoint diversity with, with real power to enforce change uh, and, and, and enforce commitments to academic freedom, we might actually see some changes. But, I, but I'm going to do, uh, and, and the, the, the think tank we're going to create is going to do a lot of research on that to make sure we I get the right this. I love this. I just got to say that I love that you're putting this together. And like, I can't think of many more noble things than trying to promote freedom of thought. Like that's pretty much the most noble thing I think a person can do, in my opinion. Freedom should ultimately be the goal because tyranny always ends in misery for people. Um, but we didn't ask you uh, the question that we ask everyone. So yeah, we dove right in. <laughs> what do you love about Canada? What do I love about Canada? Uh, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about that before I came on here. A, I, I think it's kind of an intangible thing, right? You, you love where you're from, you know, and I'm, I've been, you know, I'm from here for hundreds of years. My ancestors from the, like the, the 18th century in the, in the gas bay to, to, to in Peterborough where I live now. In fact, I've got people who were born, you know, buried in the 19th century in the cemeteries in Peterborough. So there's something about just, you know, it, I, I was teaching in, in the UK before I came back to, to teach at Trent. And when I came back for the job interview, I remember driving down the, the 115 highway into Peterborough and I just recognized the landscape yeah. after about a decade away. And I thought, I just feel at home here, right? I just feel this is, this is where I'm from. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll end there. There's more you could go No, I love that. I love that. Uh, I, Zach often talks about driving because he lives in Woodstock, but he drives to, to Cambridge for work. And just driving down those roads and looking at the fields. And he's like, they're not, they don't belong to you, but they're your fields. I know them intimately yeah. because yeah. I see them twice a day, five <laughs> days, sometimes six days a week. And it, you, you grow a deep love for those places when you're so familiarized with them. Yeah. I, I've, there's that, I forget who said it, but someone once said, like, it's really hard to hate someone once you know them. And I think maybe that's the conclusion of all this is maybe we need to start having conversations with people we don't agree with. Because once we get to know them, it's going to be a lot harder to hate them. Yeah. Not impossible, but harder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, Chris. Uh, really enjoyed this. Well, I'm sure we'll have you on again at some later date. But um, yeah, thank you for what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Good, good discussion. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.